What is up, everybody? Welcome to the TMI Podcast. Today we have Isaac. And Josh. And Josh, I have a question for you. What's wrong with being rich? What's wrong with being rich? Man, there's so many ways to respond to that. I could, <laughs> you know, beg the question, is there anything wrong with being rich? Um, what's wrong socially, societally with being rich? Is there... Um, I think what we're going to talk about a bit today is if there's anything the gospel or theology or religion in general have to say about being rich is uh, it's an important political and philosophical question. Do people have a right to be richer than others? Is it, um, and it, it, Doctrine and Covenants actually says on this question, it says it's not given that one man should possess more than another. What does that mean? It's not given, it's not, is it permissible? Um, it's an interesting question in the church especially here in Provo, because we've got lots of bishops and stake presidents, and then in the church in general, lots of like mission presidents. Mm -hmm. And many general authorities are people who have illustrious business careers, generally, you know, business doctors or lawyers Mm -hmm. is kind of where a lot of general authorities come from, in my observation, at least uh, the ones that you hear from in conference, Mm -hmm. maybe not so much local authorities, but... So is there anything wrong with being rich? Um, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going <laughs> to defer the question and, and see if we can find an answer dialectically in this yeah. discussion. Um, we uh, kind of got some ideas from an article by, by David Bentley Hart that we're going to be discussing a bit today. Um, it's called Mammon Ascendant. And Hart is an Orthodox theologian who's very forceful in his convictions very controversial. This is the first thing I've read by him, so I don't know a whole lot about him. But in, in this, he kind of got two really interesting ideas. One is that um, the New Testament is treats the accumulation of the individual accumulation of wealth as not only dangerous but evil. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that is a temptation that puts you in a situation where you could commit. A lot of serious evil, such as oppression of the poor, um, or or ingratitude or pride, to to not recognize that you are indebted to God for the gifts He gives you. Um, so He says it, but He says the message of the New Testament is that it's not only dangerous but inherently evil and wrong, and that if we look to the example of the Apostolic Church in the New Testament, they had all things in common um, and were essentially. Um, communistic but without the whole atheism part of it Mm -hmm. so that's big idea one is that the new testament you know we can we can disagree with hard about what he says about the new testament or we can disagree with the new testament or we have to question um what his second premise is is that um capitalism or you know an, an economic philosophy that promotes and encourages the accumulation of wealth and that rates people on their success based on how well they can do that, says that is, has been parallel and intertwined with secularism, secularization of society with increased agnosticism and atheism, and that those are not just accidental, but unavoidably, you know, the second we adopted capitalism, we were also committing ourselves eventually to lose religion mm-hmm. as a society. says those are unavoidably connected. So... Um, yeah, we can just we can question him. We can question the New Testament, or right. we can disagree with the New Testament. We can say that's what the New Testament says, but we disagree. 
Because, right. you know, we look at the rich young, rich young ruler and, you know, we, I've, I've never heard anyone say that that's applicable to everyone. Everyone mm-hmm. is very careful to say that was just, it's not for all rich people either. It's just for this one guy. That's what he had to give right. up in order to be consecrated. Right. I've heard the same sentiment. Like, that's why I think this is an interesting conversation because it seems like we've been, it seems like we've been saying, I mean, being rich is fine. Like, it seems like the initial answer to that question is no, there's nothing wrong with being rich. I mean, there's something wrong with using your resources uh, to do these bad things. And there is a more potential likelihood that you commit these certain sins if you are rich, but that being rich is not inherently bad. And I don't know. I am inclined to believe that because, I mean, that would benefit me in my own pursuits of capital, you know? <laughs> like, if it was bad to accumulate capital, then... Not not only is this question uh, valuable because, like, okay, if the answer is yes, it doesn't just mean that I should be a super charitable person, but it also means that the system in which I live is kind of, like improperly constructed mm-hmm. or it's constructed in a way that puts me in a horrible position a horrible moral position you know right and then you have the question of is it a necessary evil mm-hmm. do we have to because of how the world operates do i you know and 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 there's a lot of there's so many arguments in defense of this because our everything relies on the pursuit of capital in mm-hmm. america you know we say um you can only donate to charity if you're rich, or you can only help the poor the most if you're rich. And um, there are economic arguments about this. I mean, you know, really rich people give billions to poor and to humanitarian and and things like that. But you could argue that the system that made them billionaires is what impoverished these other people <laughs> in the first place, and that the that the the charity doesn't actually outweigh the harm. Mm-hmm. That's a specific economic political argument, but. I think one of the hard things about this is we associate, at least in our church, we very strongly associate Christianity with democracy and in many ways with American democracy because right. we we have scriptures about the divinity or the inspiration of the Constitution, but we also see um, the discovery of the Americas as parallel with the Restoration, and that's right. prophetic in the Book of Mormon and lots of things. So we see democracy as indispensable from Christianity, and then we often don't distinguish between democracy and capitalism mm-hmm. in America. We see it as one thing. And right. then on the other hand, we have communism, socialism are associated with Soviet atheism. Right. And and so it's not even a question that we're really usually uh, willing to entertain. So, and I'm just going to add my another thing that doesn't even begin to s- discuss a solution or an answer, but just like really... Uh, maybe uh, fleshes out the, the issue but he also talks about the idea of reaganism in that same era of, of in that same cold war era and or the emergence of the cold out of the cold war era i should say and how we don't really the, the even the modern idea of a conservative well, I don't even want to get into all those nuances, but essentially, it's really difficult for us to divorce a an economic system from a moral system now, which is really weird. Uh, maybe you've seen a political compass map before, where it's like, um, you know, economic right, economic left, and then authoritarian, libertarian. Mm-hmm. It seems like a little bit of a more nuanced way to organize someone's political ideas, but like, it's really difficult for us to say like. 
it, for example, you would probably you could probably extrapolate my ideas or one's ideas in the United States based on what they think about abortion, for example, which is really weird. Like if they said, "Oh, I'm I'm super, um, you know, pro-life. I mm-hmm. I think abortion is 100% protected." They would also very likely say, "And this is the economic system that I favor: intense capitalism." Right. So that's like, whoa, that correlation. I do see in in this article that he mentioned it, Reagan it represents kind of the 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 marriage of these you know there's societal well, and values on and the, the economic side values too, on the on the left side you had right maybe four groups and there's probably some overlap between them but you've got you know economic liberals and conservatives and then you've got social liberals and conservatives and what you have is unification of white christian orthodox people and Wall Street bankers on the one side, and then you have um, moral liberals, free love people, and this is a super oversimplification, but, and and then, um, well, and there's some interesting economic trends. There's actually a lot of very poor people who are Republican, Mm -hmm. Um, but this isn't about politics. This is a, but of course, it's it's really related. Mm -hmm. Our, Our whole political economic system well, is tied up with this moral question. I bring this up because... Like, <clears throat> but I, I think the answer, let me just read real quick this uh, verse I mentioned earlier. It, it doesn't. It's not very ambiguous about its answer to this question. This is Doctrine and Covenants 49.20. It says, But it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another. Wherefore the world lieth in sin. The world lieth in sin, mm-hmm. which could just be kind of a blanket statement that the whole world is in sin because we are not living the law of consecration, mm-hmm. economically, sociopolitically. Um, you could argue, but I don't know, is this, is, this, uh, is this the same kind of statement as saying, the Ten Commandments are no longer codified in law. The whole world lieth in sin mm-hmm. because we're not the Old Testament theocracy anymore. Right. So, yeah. Well, uh, man, I, I'm having trouble coming up with the solutions and just thinking more about the problems because, like, we also associate goodness with social progress today, right? Like the fact that we developed a vaccine for something mm-hmm. is probably a good idea. And the fact that we have computers, we feel like, is in general a good idea, you know? And we have this idea of us, you know, perpetually moving forward towards the ultimate singularity society where we've <clears throat> solved all of human suffering, you know? And so I can look at the Old Testament and say, wow, well, no, I better said, when I look at the Old Testament, I don't go, wow, what a great economic system. You know, I think, wow, look at all these people, you know, living in waste and squalor and they you know even like when i assume david the israelite king is a good guy i kind of assume like he's got 300 wives and the other men are like scrambling around over a few women you know and he's like stolen not only the women but he's stolen all the wealth he probably eats grapes and nice cheese you know (laughs) everybody else like eats a loaf of bread every few days you know and is crawling around in rags you know so i'm like wait a second I don't think the other systems have really been that great either, which is another uh, argument people in favor of this system use often, which is, I mean, do we have a better system than the one that we're living now? And they might even argue, well, we tried out the whole uh, let's all, you know, what is it? Uh, 
every man according to his needs. Uh, oh, what is, how does that go? Each according to his need. Ugh. Well, just, yeah, the scriptural idea that everyone gets what they need. Everyone gets what they need. And, and everyone the gives what they have doing. and is returned what yes. they need. Give, give what you have, you get what you because need. Because it's, uh, well, and this is, I've, I've mentioned 1984 before, but I love the book. But this is a big concept in that book, and it, it's true in our world, that we're well beyond the point where we have the economic capacity to give everyone, to have everyone be above the poverty level. Mm-hmm. Um, some people's argument is that, you know, in, in pure productive capacity, we're at that point. But people might say, you take away the incentives for, or you take away the possibility of people becoming super rich, and you lose that productive capacity mm-hmm. because that that you know, it, it's the it's the pleasure principle that hedonism that dominates our society that it's about um, that happiness is about one standard of living and and about the accumulation of wealth and that. Um, people can't be motivated to work by any other principle, right. which I think is actually very offensive to human nature. I think it is too. <clears throat> it, it is, I mean, that's a very, you know, that's like uh, the idea that, so when we first discovered, you know, natural selection, we immediately said, oh, this means we're all these selfish, self-replicating robots who, you know, like they, if anything is able to get them to reproduce or to stay alive, They'll do it. They'll kill people. They'll torture them. You know, they'll whatever because we're all inherently selfish. And then go go take a look at an ant colony, you know? And, you know, like what will an ant colony do? Those ants will literally kill themselves no problem just to, you know, keep their – and they're literally ants. You know, they have an incredibly underdeveloped nervous system and all these other things. Yet they're like incredibly <clears throat> altruistic. And so are bees and so are termites. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually interact with some other animals, like elephants are also incredibly altruistic, you know? And uh, so we have these a ton of natural examples that totally prove the animalistic nature is not necessarily to be selfish. This is a totally biological aside, but I agree that it's an insult to human nature and it's built on a total false presupposition. Mm-hmm. Natural selection is not an idea that immediately... Um, it, it, that creates the universal assumption that every organic, every clump of organic matter is selfish. It's not true. So I, I do want to get around to some of the specific answers. And I, I think the Doctrine and Covenants verse is very clear. And not only do we have that Doctrine and Covenants, but we have so many good examples of super societies in the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <coughs> You know that we the only have one example, though, of a super um, consecration society, right? In the Book of Mormon, right? Which lasted longer than the New Testament. It's New Testament parallel. It's very. But, it was very successful. But we have other ones before that maybe weren't completely perfect, but were really good. Well, and, I guess we also have the city of Enoch and the Pearl of Great Price. So we've kind of got like the New Testament Apostolic Society, we have the Fourth Nephi Society, mm-hmm. and then we have the City of Enoch. And maybe a Melchizedek in there, but we don't that's, really know anything about true. that society as well. Abraham, yeah. Hmm. So I think like every other philosophical question, though, what this really goes back to is what is the good? Mm-hmm. We have to define our conception of the end of existence, the purpose and the aim of life. And... And because, you know, again, we have this implicit assumption that happiness has to do with standard of living 
and that capitalism promotes the standard of living of all. Right. Or at least in a utilitarian way of all on average. Right. You know, this invisible hand. Some are going to be impoverished in the process, but in general, society is better off. Right. And I, I just think that's a, a perspective that the New and Old Testaments would totally disagree with. I agree. Um, I think I don't think there's really any sort of utilitarianism anywhere in the scriptures, and that. Um, well, maybe not. That's I haven't actually thought that out, so I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but Fact because the, the Old Testament is very concerned with social justice, um, and 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 the apostasy of Israel is generally associated with mistreatment of the poor and of the lower classes right. of society, and and it's not just Israel. Ancient societies loved this idea of helping the poor. Like, this is just a really brief uh, thing, but like. In the ancient world, if you were a king, you were always campaigning on the fact that I'm going to help the poor and the widows and the afflicted. Like, that's one of my main tenets. You know, when they're on the podium campaigning, not really. That's not how it really ever worked. But it was like, that's the virtuous king. The virtuous king is the person who does help the poor. You know? And in many ways, that's still how it is today. Right. Um, only problem is that class of people never seems to disappear. They're just always there to mobilize for political ends. Right. But, um, so I think, <clears throat> what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I, I, th I think part of it has to do with that the New and the Old Testaments had a different conception of the happy man, of the, of the fulfilled person. You know, it, it, was, um, it was all about just the Word of God mm -hmm. and about living and following um, that word and, and being in the covenant with God. And, you know, economically, it was your own vine and fig tree, not your own mansion and pool, mm -hmm. right? Um, vine and fig tree, at least for me, is a very subsistence idea. Like, it's, it's, it's enough to get by. It's tending your own garden, picking your own grapes from the vine. Right. And uh, so I, I, I tend to agree with Hart's argument about what the New Testament argues. Um, the the harder part is whether or not I disagree with the New Testament on this question because yeah, you know I I see the New Testament as authoritative, but as it, I think it has some wrong cultural assumptions and it could perhaps have some wrong economic assumptions at different parts right. of it. Um, just the the treatment and prominence of women, for example, is something that we have a very different uh, perspective on today than right. the New Testament does. But and. You know, I, I tend to want to favor things, the status quo, I guess, things as they are, like the consecration as a higher law, but capitalism is the next best thing because most closely associated with democracy, perhaps. Right. Um, <clears throat> but also because it's, it's hard to think that the church has just kind of acquiesced in this inherently evil economic system for 200 years and never really said much about it. Right. Although there was a strong anti-communist phase. Right. So I guess, in any, if anything, we've been very strong in defense of it. Right. And <clears throat> in the pursuit of the answer, what you said earlier, uh, I, I, understanding the highest good and then in the pursuit of that, which system do we eventually come to terms with? And in that, within that system, is a rich man allowed to exist or not? And that's where I think we recognize the impossibility of answering the question because for a person both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Let's just pick an apostle out. You know, Let's say Peter. 
envisioning the best possible economic system. He could never have fathomed the economic system we live in. You know, there, There's no way he could have just said, oh, this is a great idea. We'll do this capitalist thing. You know, Investing in a company didn't exist. You know, That's a newish idea. So he had no idea that that was a possibility. So in a sense, the greatest good concept that anyone could conceptualize, and I, I think there's something else I want to say about this, but the greatest good he could have conceptualized about an economic system was something uh, likely that we don't understand. Because also, I don't anticipate a king, you know, like, when I picture what's the best possible political system, I still don't think of a king. Even though people in the Book of Mormon tell you constantly, the best possible system is having a righteous king and everybody does what he says. And to me, that doesn't sound that good, because I can't think of any times where monarchies were really that great, you know? But that makes sense for my conception of history. So when it comes to the idealization of society, it makes sense that me and Peter have a few disagreements. You're saying it's not even fair to ask him the question, because he didn't really know what the options were. He didn't know what the options were. And I mean, to, to be fair, I wouldn't say that I have the best possible conception of the economic system either. I'm just going off of what's happened in, the re in recent time. And I totally agree with you. I mean, people are cripplingly lonely, depressed, and anxious now, and our standing of living has increased by a lot. So I totally agree with you. It's not the solution mm -hmm. to everything. So maybe Peter's got a point. Maybe we should have tried that instead. I don't know. What I wanted to say, though, is the spiritual implications of this is we are, we are not on earth trying to build the perfect society as a religious community. I don't think that's the goal. Because, well, I think I would, I would say that a bit differently. I would say we're trying to build the perfect religious community. The perfect religious But as a religious community, we're not trying to build the perfect political system or the perfect economic system because we don't believe, or I, I guess you could say we are striving towards that end, but it's not something we actually anticipate happening right. until Christ comes again. Exactly. In which we <clears> assume, okay, now the perfect political and... Uh, economic systems will finally come into fruition then. Um, so I, I was just, I think this is interesting because what we follow, that what we, when I read the scriptures, I think, how can I use this idealistic framework? You know, there, I can use the scriptures to formulate the abstract ideal good of a spiritual life, you know? And so when I formulate this thing using the scriptures, it's universally applicable to all humans in any age. That is what you should truly be extrapolating from these spiritual things because what the scriptures, what, what uh, even Abraham can teach me about spirituality remains true throughout all human history for all humans. And that is the most relevant spiritual thing. And what he has to say about a perfect society, about a perfect political system, and so on and so forth, is much less relevant. And so the, when we discuss it like this, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if it's inherently bad to be a rich person. And I think Jesus could have authoritatively said, in this society, if you're accumulating a bunch of wealth, then it's inherently bad. Could have been a true statement then. But in a society now, it's possible that statement is no longer true. That's interesting. That's very interesting because, uh, and some people will argue, that, I mean, th this is kind of the anti-capitalist argument, is that as in this ancient society, the only way to become extremely wealthy is unavoidably by exploiting the poor. Mm -hmm. 
and, and in some way acquiescing to these institutional structures that oppress the poor in order to raise yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, like that you can never become a you can never become a competitive big industry without relying on cheap labor with bad conditions in right. third world countries and those kinds of things. Or in some way, you know, there there are a lot of companies that portray themselves as somehow circumventing all environmental and socio socio political <laughs> problems in their production mm-hmm. processes. But um, I, don't I, I, I see the <laughs> argument that in some way they are acquiescing to a system that demeans and denigrates the poor. And um, <clears throat> so a different idea here, though, is that whether or not it's inherently evil, I mean, it does have a lot of benefits, benefits that whether or not un- unavoidable or necessary for the spread of the gospel are important to the sp- spread of the gospel. You know, like in, in a subsistence society, you can never have the population that we have today that would bring so many of the spirit children of God to earth. And you right. can never have the sort of um, capital, you know, the division of labor and the capital accumulation in such a way that a church centered in America could be building hundreds of temples all over, all over the whole world. Right. And you wouldn't have modern technology and communication without which the, the spread of the gospel would be a very different task. Much slower. So, so certainly, God finds a way to use capitalism to his advantage. Seems like and, it. Um, <laughs> That's very interesting. But he does, so I think... And uses rich people, maybe. I think we kind of have to bypass the question of... Uh, I just, I'll just say I, I tend to agree with... Uh, well, I guess I tend to agree with Hart's argument that it does imply and contain inherent evils that that capitalism posits that the highest good is the pursuit of wealth, mm-hmm. and that's hedonistic, and that's um, morally incorrect, mm-hmm. or at least unenlightened. Right. Um, but I also tend to think that it's the best system that we can have in a fallen world with um, selfish individuals. And, and I, I, I'm also... You think your great-grandson is listening to this thinking, what an idiot. We came up with a way better system. I sure hope after. so. <laughs> I sure hope so. Um, although I think my great-great-grandson will probably be living in a post-millennial world. So we'll see. Um, but I also, I actually agree with the, well, lean towards the Marxist argument that it's unavoidable, that history tended towards this and would un- unavoidably have produced capitalism, capitalism and eventually... In kind of a Darwinistic evolutionary way, it's like survival of the fittest, and this is the system that can outcompete other systems. Mm-hmm. And the system that allows Britain or America to become these enormous imperial powers and destroy all the subsistence economies. And obviously, there's so much evil in the history of capitalism. Just look at what was done to the Native Americans um, mm-hmm. or, or African Americans. Um, but I think evil has been done by every system. True, true. And so. Uh, let's maybe bypass for a second the question of whether or not um, capitalism is inherently evil and associated with atheism mm-hmm. and, and see what does the gospel have to say about living in a capitalist world. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier this verse. Um, so uh, this is Alma, sorry, Mosiah eighteen twenty seven, And again, Alma commanded that the people of the church should impart of their substance Everyone according to that which he had, if he have more abundantly, he should impart more abundantly. And of him that had but little, 
but little should be required, and to him that had not should be given. Uh-huh. That's the economic system of the higher, more enlightened societies of the Book of Mormon. Right. Until you eventually get the fully consecrated society. But this principle is essentially um, <clears throat> the law of consecration individually applied, as opposed to structurally applied. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how we have it today, I think. This principle is still taught. Um, and, and, you know, Mosiah's sermon is very much about social justice for the poor and about not judging the beggar and saying that um, they're, that they've brought it upon themselves and, and things like that. And, and the expectation is that God has given, God can take away. Um, you know, that's what Job said. Mm-hmm. And... Um, God expects us to give what we can. And, and so I want to get to an important idea here. I'll just, I'll just name it right now. The idea, and I think we have to be really careful not to judge the rich as not following this principle, that because they're still rich, they're not giving enough, mm-hmm. that, that we expect them to impoverish themselves. Right. Um, there's some merit to the idea, but there's also some problems with the idea. Um, so I think what the gospel tells us is that I think the gospel does agree that capitalism and the pursuit of wealth in a hedonistic society, a society based on the pleasure principle, they are inherently dangerous and they act on these ideas that are inherently threatening to discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so that we have to be constantly counteracting those through acts and ordinances and tithing and fast offerings and things like that that remind us to be grateful, to recognize where our economic blessings come from, to recognize that in, in almost all cases there's really no moral difference that has produced the one person being rich and the other being poor. We were, we're generally born into different classes and tend to stay in those classes. Right. And so I think there's a really good quote by C.S. Lewis that kind of summarizes this idea. It says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And so this uh, is kind of like this perpetual... You know, this is the economic version of what it means to carry your cross. Mm-hmm. It's the, the crucifixion of the natural man. It's to to give and to be generous and to give more than more than the minimum in in fast offerings and, and, and things like that. And to be, you know, it's such a message in the New Testament to, to visit the, the sick and those in prison and to give to the naked and to feed the hungry. And... Um, Essentially, to constantly, through giving, which is painful, or at least at first, giving away money and, and not having it, through that, to constantly kind of prick ourselves and, and kind of, yeah, it's just like pinching yourself, like reminding you, like, it's not all, it's not all about the accumulation of wealth. Mm-hmm. By giving it away, you actually, I think, kill that, that desire in yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Book of Mormon actually teaches us that that's the best way to become wealthy as well is that um, well that if you have righteous desires for how you're going to spend your wealth then that's another interesting idea that that the wealthy are the most righteous because God trusts them with a greater mm-hmm. stewardship which also extremely problematic. But it seems to manifest itself a little bit in church organization which it seems to follow a natural pattern which is 
If you have more wealth, you might have these qualities. You're very industrious. You like to work mm-hmm. hard, especially in the United States where, you know, a overwhelming majority of church general leadership resides uh, is in the United States. So, and not to mention that, but you also have free time, you know, because now you have so much money. I mean, you could not work another day in your life. You could just do church stuff forever now and just live off your interest, you know, in the bank account. Well, and it's almost a requirement for many callings to be able to serve as a mission Mission president. president. You have to be able to leave your estate for a couple years and still have enough to live on when you get back. Right. To be a temple president, you have to be basically retired and, and living on enough money that you cannot work and, and you know, right. those kinds of things. So the, and, and those are both requirements. So th- we're not the only people <clears throat> who try to tackle this issue. Uh, let's think about the Catholic Church, for example, where I'm assuming David himself is Catholic, given he's an instructor. No, oh, no Hart? Name. David? Um, I don't actually know. What do fact checkers have to say about Which? David? Bentley Hart. He is Eastern Orthodox. You're kidding. So not just uh, Orthodox on the spectrum. He's actually Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> now that okay. is cool. It's like uh, interesting. I know a lot about Eastern Orthodox. Definitely the probably the most prominent Eastern Orthodox in America. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what, what what was I talking about? His idea is ca- Catholic. So when you're a priest, you just get paid as a priest. <clears throat> you get paid enough to live. You went to school, you devoted your entire life to this, uh, and so you get to do it. And the same is true with other cardinals and popes, that they get enough money, uh, you know, sometimes questionable <clears throat> amounts of money. But our church leaders, general authorities, also do get paid. Uh, some of them do. But yeah, that's Let true. And there's, Yes, but I think we should point out here, um, the church still follows the principle of having a lay clergy except right. in the extreme minority of cases. Right. And, you know, that's how it was in the Book of Mormon. It says they weren't paid for their teaching, but they, they stopped working in order to go and preach, and the listeners stopped working in order to hear, and then they all returned to their occupations and, and were able to mm-hmm. subsist. And and that's how it is at, at local levels, and even with many local authority positions, general authority positions. Right. Um, Which bishops, like, might work... 15 hours plus a week, sometimes more, in their calling. Right. On top of a regular job. It is, it is extremely demanding. And, all and, the yet, hours are and yet they're not paid. They're not paid um, at all. And, and temple workers and all these other kinds of volunteers that you have in the church. So there is the extreme minority of cases. And I think that's probably just out of necessity. You know, there, are, there, there needs to be a few people who, who really do give all of their time mm-hmm. and are able to travel and and to be able to go all over the world and spread the gospel. And and I don't have any problem with that. I think, though, it, it does teach us something important that... Um, <clears throat> and and this, the church is firm about this. Every general authority is firm about this, and, and yet we don't really believe it. I don't think a lot of people in the church don't. Is that no calling is better than any other. That no, you know... Uh, your calling is not indicative of your spiritual closeness to Heavenly Father, at least not necessarily so. Mm-hmm. And that there are all kinds of other factors and reasons for why people receive certain callings. And I think, you know, with Mission President, for example, I think that we, we can see that there are plenty of people in the world who 
have the spiritual capability to be a mission president mm-hmm. or a wife of a mission president and to run a mission. But um, God uses what he has, and so he's going to use his spiritually prepared saints who can also leave and not work for two or three years. Um, so I think this is an important proof to the idea that being a mission, being called as a mission president or something else where economic requirement is a necessity, or I mean economic affluence is a, is a requirement, um, does, isn't necessarily a, a statement that they're spiritually better than, than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, God is going to work with the rich, and he's going to work with the poor, and mm-hmm. he's going to uh, require of them what they can give. Right. The, here, here's a, a maybe passable uh, criticism of the system, which I think is if the people who are in charge are generally wealthier than the other people— then will we not have a system wherein the kinds of rules made, the kinds of advice given, the kinds of structures created, and so on and so forth, are the ones that come from the minds of rich people rather than the ones that come from the minds of poor Mm -hmm. people? And that could be problematic. I mean, it, it could make a lot of people uncomfortable, you know? Like, how many how many people who have born and died poor... Uh, besides now, in the early church, most people were incredibly poor <laughs> the entire time, you know, uh, and barely had enough money. And so that is a different, that was a different time. Totally different time. That's the conclusion I keep, I keep getting towards is I don't think that the idea of personal accumulation of wealth, which it is always individual, and it almost always seems comparative. So like if the entire society accumulates wealth, congruently together, then it's not bad, it seems like, every time. Mm-hmm. So let's let a general Nephite societal experience of this is we all decided to work together and be kind to each other, and suddenly our economic system was really good. And so we were really industrious, we made business deals, we built buildings, so on and so forth. And then this system allowed us to make things like gold and other status symbols and nice clothes, which were the status symbols in this part of, uh, you know, the Americas at this time. And then we started to distinguish ourselves. And then the the critical error always seems to be they distinguish themselves as better than one another. They always begin to wear costly clothing. And it says, um, let me pull up Alma 32 here. It says... They dis- they were despised of all men because of their poverty. They're despised and exploited because mm. they are poor. So it's a positive feedback loop of exploitation and right. deprivation. Um, <clears throat> I want to read a quote by Joseph Smith here in relation to this idea. Um, it's general, but I think it's applicable to, to economy as well. So he says, well, this is from a talk by Truman G. Matson about the life of Joseph Smith. It says, The question was put to him, to Joseph. Joseph, is the principle of self-aggrandizement wrong? Should we seek our own good? Listen to his answer. Quote, It is a correct principle and may be indulged upon, and may be indulged upon only one rule or plan, and that is to elevate benefit and bless others first. 
If you will elevate others, the very work itself will exalt you. Upon no other plan can a man justly and permanently aggrandize himself. So I think that is the... Oh, and then there's another bit here. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mm-hmm. That's Jesus' question. Nothing. So I think, I think generally that's kind of the gospel's answer is you have to seek it for the good of others. You have to seek it. And, and, and you and your, your family and, you know, giving your children a good education and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. that is also worthy and admirable goal right. for how to spend your money. Um, so, so it's really nuanced. Like, when, when I say a rich man, I think of the kind of person who has millions of dollars in his bank account. And, you know, his kids are all going to go to college wherever they want. And... You know, he doesn't have to he doesn't have to work, but he can. He's really respectable in his community and he's got a lot of influence and stuff like that. That's what I think of when I think of rich man. When I bet that wasn't the same, you know, six thousand years ago. I bet that's not when people thought of rich man, that's probably not what they thought of. Makes a lot of sense. So I think even even get making a lot of money is not bad. Because if if I made three million dollars a year and I kept a hundred K for me and my kids and my wife, Mm -hmm. then I'm not a rich man, I would say. I mean, $100,000 makes you rich in most countries, as a matter Mm -hmm. of fact, per year. And it makes you upper class in America. It makes you upper class in America. But not what most people would call rich. Right, not what most people would call rich. And I keep 100 k I live in like a two-bedroom house in the suburbs of California, you know, and we, we go out to eat, you know, maybe once a week or something like that, you know? I mean, then I'm not really rich, but I make a lot of money. And I donate, you know, I cut that whole top off and I give it to other people. I actually think that's a great use of the capitalist society. And the biggest, here, it's something, I, Elder Christopherson speaks about this frequently, but he, he's, he talks about um, in, in a lot of his messages that it used to be the, the fact that we culturally kept each other in check and a collective sense of morality, of Christian morality, was what we used to, let's say, um, not drink copious amounts of alcohol mm-hmm. or not be, um, not commit sexual violence and so on and so forth. And now we use laws instead mm-hmm. to prevent those things. And he says that this is a, it's a sign of actually moral deterioration. So this is really interesting. Like... Let's say that's true. There's a lot about our society. I I heard uh, I think it was President Kimball one time who was talking about may have been President McKay or someone else, but talking about the arms race in the Cold War, and basically saying like the very fact that we're stocking up nuclear weapons is indicative of the lack of faith of our society because mm-hmm. you know the what the covenant people should be doing is calling on God for protection and. It's, it's just it just shows you how how contrary to our experience and assumptions that is because as soon as I say that everyone's first thought is so we just let them blow us up mm-hmm. right um, but yeah so in a lot of ways we uh, we have turned to institutions and to weapons and to armies to replace what was once done by collective morals and reliance on God. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I can look at the past and really clear-cut say we were just such a nice and moral society back then. I really can't say that. I mean, horrible things have been happening all the time. But I do think it is very notable 
and makes a lot of sense, that the more a society decides to use enforceable law as its, you know, baseline of morality, you know, like and a, tr- a true libertarian would say, like he actually mentions this a little bit in the article, but if you do, as long as you don't do anything that's against the law, you're good to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. That is kind of... Well, and not just against the law because they have a very specific idea about what the law should be. As long as you don't, it's essentially just the idea that maximum freedom compatible with equal freedom for others. Right. So a law that restricts my freedom is actually against libertarianism. Mm-hmm. If it if it doesn't, you know, I have to restrict my freedom of violence against others, for example, because that impairs their freedom. Right. But, so yes. So, yeah, if, uh, that is an important distinction. I don't think we've always been moral, but it is interesting that we used to be moral but you know you could also argue like the law of moses this is actually a great illustration of this principle you know moses was debatably going to come down with a different set of laws and then when he realized that they had made the gold calf and done all these things he comes with a much stricter for the stiff-necked israelites a lower a lower law and what is the lower law it's it takes entire chapters full of specific when this happens and this happens, then this is the consequence. Mm-hmm. This huge written thing, you know, where these different actions have these specific consequences. And it seems that's the kind of laws you give to a child, you know. Children are like, what's right? What's wrong? Tell me what. And then when you're an adult, that's not the solution. The solution is you're intelligent enough to navigate a moral sphere by yourself now. And so rather than giving you a bunch of rules, I'm just going to give you this general set of principles, and I trust that in different circumstances, which are sometimes nuanced and difficult to navigate, you'll figure it out. That seems to be the highest law, you know? And I I do think, even in an economic sense, uh, an economic, like, I think, when I think of, in my own, you know, I was born in 2001, so I've only been exposed to this many places and this many things and ideas during my existence. But from what I know, the best, you know, when I make, create an abstract, perfect societal economic system in my head, I'm thinking everybody gives, like, everything they have, basically, to each other. Poor people are taken care of. Everything's nice. But it's not because it's a law. It's because they just love each other, you know? In the same way that I, I would give money to a relative, there is no law necessitating that exchange, but because I love my relative so much, I'm willing to give them money. That's another thing we used to do as a society is care for our, our elderly, our and elderly. now we have social security and, and homes, institutions right. to do it. Um, which, again, the church teaches a very different principle. It says, uh, oh, and actually during the welfare area, there was a kind of a dialogue in the church that you should turn to your family and then to the church and then to government aid. Like, hmm. don't be going straight to government aid. Mm-hmm. Because the principle is that, you know, immediate is, is what it says in the family proclamation. Immediate family should help, and then extended family when necessary. Mm-hmm. And then you can go further. Right. But that God's design is for us to support each other and families. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the general answer about what the church has to say about all this, in any case, is it doesn't have a law of Moses approach. Right. It doesn't have... If you make this much money, you know, we've got this general 10%, but then beyond that, we're taught to be generous and charitable and to focus our time and our efforts and our energies 
And eventually we covenant to consecrate everything we have to the, the building up of the church and of Zion. Right. And, and there are, it's possible to have different economic opinions about the best way to be of a force for good in the world. You know, um, there are philosophers like Peter Singer, for example, um, He's a, a prominent utilitarian today, and he, he says, he goes and gives talks at like Google HQ and with all these millionaire coders and stuff. He says, you know, utilitarian, utilitarianism says, and, and this moral principle says, you should give, you should do what you were saying. Be a millionaire and keep 100000 for yourself. Mm-hmm. Cut the top off and donate it to making malaria nets in Africa because that's how you can save the most lives per dollar mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. But a different person might say, well, if I become a billionaire, I can do more good just on the interest of my money if mm-hmm. I invest it and then just donate all of the interest, you know, make it a perpetual donation fund to where it's it's earning a million dollars interest a year and it's always going to this charity or something like mm-hmm. that, you know. So, um, so I think that kind of answers the thing about judgment as well. When you see someone who's rich... The, the fact of their being rich says nothing about them morally. Mm-hmm. It may be indicative of some characteristics of them. It may not. Mm-hmm. You know, they may be, have inherited a trust fund, um, but they may also be a generally hardworking and industrious and innovative person. Maybe they won the Georgia They maybe ball. won the lottery, right? <laughs> but morally, I think, you know, because different intelligent people can come to different conclusions about... Um, because once you decide to be generous, you want to do the most good per dollar, right? Mm-hmm. And so then it's a utilitarian question, which is an economic and a mathematical and a, and a complicated question given all the institutions and the way the world works. And so different people can disagree about that. And, and so they may both be motivated by the same principles, but come to different conclusions about how they can be how they can live that covenant of consecration and right. how much of their wealth they should give away. Because, again, if you give, if you impoverish yourself, then you, you've given it all away once, but you can't ever do it again. Right. Um, and and that, again, like that's, that's kind of the fundamental premise of capitalism as well as it requires reinvestment of that wealth. Right. If all the rich just gave away their wealth, capitalism would die in a, in a generation. Mm-hmm. Um, if they did, at least if they did it to the extreme. So maybe a quest, uh, an idea about charity. Um, it would feel best for me if I was this guy who made three million dollars and kept the one hundred thousand for myself. If I like specifically, like if I showed up to, you know, if I was a Mr. Beast, you know who Mr. Beast is, the YouTuber. Mm-hmm. If I instead went to the park, I saw a homeless guy, said, "Here's a hundred thousand dollars, woo!" And I made a video, and I felt super good. And I visited him on Christmas sometimes. And I saw his kids and. Now he's shaved his beard and, you know, I don't know. He lives in a nice house, whatever. And I just did that with all my money. That would be way more fun. But it would be less utilitarian. And then there's a little bit of nuance here. Like, whoa. Like, the balance our state president talks about sometimes of effectiveness and efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like, is charity uh, something designed? Like, there's discipleship that feels good and discipleship that doesn't feel good. Like, the discipleship that everybody seems to universally accept, you know? They're like, I like Christians because they do this. Mm -hmm. Well, the things that they're referring to are being kind to people and loving them and supporting them. And And also the social gospel aspect of it. Right. You know, the promotion of 
you know, raising the lowest class of society. Right. And so my question is, uh, if the best kind of, if the most doctrinal, doctrinally sound Christ-like charity is the most effective and efficient use of every one of your dollars, that kind of discipleship might mean that you never encounter the people that you're giving your money to, for example, you know? Uh, like, Which is a lot harder to do. It's way harder. Because you don't get that gratification, gratification of seeing it. So that's it. And then there's this, you know, what about social charity? Like I have time and I can spend time with people. Like what would be the best use of my time? Would it be to sit down and talk to my struggling friend for three hours? Or should I go visit six people mm-hmm. during my three hours instead, 30 mm-hmm. minutes each, and I have a decent conversation with all of them? Mm-hmm. Then like that seems like inherently the way I feel about this is that Ooh, when I start trying to make my when I start socially trying to say let's just do the best per minute I can at helping other people around me it feels kind of icky and like that's probably not right and so I wonder if the same right, is true right it feels like charity. you're making people a means to an end right almost and so then I, is the true is the same thing true with like the dollar that I'm giving like should I should I give it to you know an institution that I really like personally and that I know the owner of, or should I give it to homeless people who need something, or should I, you know, like, honestly, if you took an average person and said, I'm going to give you $2,000, and you go give out $100 bills to the homeless people in this little spot, you know, they'd probably be down. That sounds fun, you know? Sounds like you could help people's lives, you know, make them feel a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But, like, would that $2,000, that $2,000 in the hands of a charitable organization that feeds homeless people, maybe could have fed like a thousand homeless people and you just fed 20. And I I do think that, you know, God expects us to be effective stewards of the resources he entrusts us with. Right. And and so, um, because there is a dual purpose here. There is the purpose of sanctifying the soul of the giver and also improving the standard of living yeah, because there is a real, <clears throat> I mean, it, it is, it's just a, a basic human fact that it's really hard for people to think about God when they're hungry. Right. And to think about not stealing when their children are starving. Right. And, and things like that. So it, it is both a social gospel and also a gospel of individual, personal, internal sanctification. Right. And. <clears throat> so do you feel like by that, with that statement that. So, so I just want to say by that. The giving away all of your wealth charitably would fulfill the first purpose, but not the second unless you also put in the time to kind of find out where can I have the biggest impact and to investigate the charities that, you know, God expects us to be responsible. And just because you gave it all away to charity and um, they happen to be, a, you know, a, a pyramid scheme doesn't mean that what you did was entirely morally right. You should have done whatever you could to find out if it was a trustworthy charity. Right. Because there is that second purpose as well. God wants you to make maximum good come of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, to be honest, personally, I <clears throat> kind of circumvent that responsibility. I usually, um, I'll occasionally like give to different organizations. But usually if I, if I decide to give money, I just put it in the general church humanitarian fund. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I have an implicit out. trust that they're going to do the research. Right. <laughs> that they're going to use it responsibly. Um, which, I don't know. How does it, it feel? <clears throat> does it feel good? 
it feels good. I, I, I wonder if I'm maybe shirking the responsibility a bit to, because I also think, um, I mean, it is semi-sub-utilitarian. Like, um, Peter Singer did do an analysis of different charities, and, and he identified a couple where he's like, per dollar, this saves the most lives. Mm-hmm. And it's it's generally really cheap but effective stuff like malaria nets for mm-hmm. children in Africa. Um, which, again, it, there's always more economic factors, like um, ripple effects, because you, if, if they don't die of malaria, doesn't, there's still a very low um, life expectancy because of other factors. And right. so it doesn't necessarily mean that you've sa- saved a life so much as prolonged a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the church does a lot of like disaster relief, and I might think that my dollars, my impact per dollar could be greater if I chose to give the money to specific charities. Um, but again, I would have to spend that time, which in turn I could spend earning money to donate to the church by not, you know, just by implicitly trusting how they spend it. So there's a, as soon as you bring in economics, there's a lot of factors to where, um, there, the church doesn't offer a prescriptive formula for how we should be. And therefore it doesn't allow us to analyze or to judge others really to come to any conclusions about them based on their economic well-being or standing. Um, because people, people motivated by the same higher principles that the church teaches could come to different conclusions about how to spend their money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's what the church does do. Is it, it's like that quote from Joseph Smith. It reminds us that our aim always has to be the good of others and the aggrandizement of ourselves only in order to bring others up with us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, where is it in Jacob? Is it Jacob 2? <clears throat> yes. He says, uh, you know, and it's, it's the... So, okay, I'll just read it. Jacob is teaching them what Mosiah later teaches is essentially that just because you're richer doesn't mean you're better. What King Benjamin teaches. Sorry, yeah, in Mosiah, book of Mosiah. Um, we're all beggars, that kind of thing. So he says, Jacob says, Jacob chapter 2, But before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches, if ye seek them. And ye will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and afflicted. So, the gospel maybe doesn't tell us, I think, is capitalism the best? Is it inherently evil? It does tell us, and it, there's actually a lot of things like that that the gospel just doesn't have a definitive answer for. Mm-hmm. Or, or often it does, but it's the kind of thing where like this could only exist in a celestial society, so it doesn't have a definitive practical answer. Right. Because obviously the, the law of the gospel is the law of consecration, and that is the ideal um, gospel society. But I think it gives us higher principles for how to live, it tells us how to be in the world, but not of the world. How to adapt to and and focus on becoming disciples in a world that has very different focuses. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe one last idea we could discuss here, though, is this idea that righteousness leads to wealth. 
because it, it is the classic interpretation of the Book of Mormon, which is always talking about keeping the commandments and you shall prosper, prosper. in the land. Prosper. Prosper in the land. What does prospering mm-hmm. mean? And the land is <clears throat> is right here, right? That's right. what a lot of people think. Well, and that's 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 in the Old Testament too. So Jerusalem, prosper in, in, in the land, and also promised land, prosper in the mm-hmm. land. Because I think, obviously... To start off, the gospel does teach things that would tend to make a person more economically productive, mm-hmm. like not drinking and um, not doing drugs and other things that can impair your mental and physical abilities to generate wealth. And, right. Um, being. And if you can read a book, you're off to a really good start. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. It encourages education and, and literacy and. Um, other good practices like honesty that in the long run actually generate more wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems that's too simplistic, right? To say if it's, you are righteous, you will become wealthy. It feels like that's not right. And I mean, but I can't look at a <clears throat> scriptural example and tell you why because none of the people in the scriptures have been in a system like this, you know? This is a completely unique system. Uh, and, and then from my personal life, do I feel like the people who are most righteous have the most money? No. From, the, from what I can observe, uh, the distribution is not like that. And I also would say righteousness comes in many different flavors. The, the pe- there's a whole range of virtues and no one has them all. Right. There's a range of virtues. I think some rich people have the virtue. For the most part, there's lots of rich people that I feel like, oh, I really like what they learned in university and how devoted they are to their craft. Like, I think those things are cool, you know? And then with poor people, uh, I feel like I've seen the virtues of humility, of kindness, um, like way more. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I was a missionary, the kinds of people who fed me and like always gave me more are food. Are always the ones who had less to offer. Are always the ones who had less to offer. Right. Which is strange. Doesn't seem right. But like not not to say that people who had lots of money didn't also give me lots of things. They did too. Well, it's the principle of the widow's might. Mm-hmm. You know, she gave the least, but she also gave the most because she gave everything she had. Right. None of the rich were giving everything they had. Right. So, I feel no, and from my common observation, even in a capitalist society, I don't think being more righteous in every single objective way does make you rich. And I really think a critical point of this is uh, God can say what he wants to say about judging and condemning, but it, it doesn't necessarily translate to our power to judge and condemn. Like, he might say something like, it's, you know, these rich people are condemned for what they did. And I don't think that necessitates that we extrapolate from that we should also condemn anyone. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm, I have the right, moral Right, he's capacity. very firm about that. Judgment is mine. Right. And I will repay, I think is how it goes. Yeah. Something about dumping coal on somebody's heads. What's that scripture? Oh, yeah, he's going to dump the coal on their heads. Well, he also tells us to dump it on our own heads. You know, ash, sackcloth and oh, ashes, right? Sackcloth right? and ashes. Just right. not on other people's heads. Right. That's Don't be dumping business. it on your neighbor's head. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in, in my conclusion, I'll go through the little questions. Is it wrong to be rich? And I think, I'm going to put this question in context. Is it wrong to be rich in 2023 
uh, in the United States? I would say no. This is where I lean. I would say no because I think in this economic system, which was not something that those in the past conceptualized or really had the capacity to, um, that you can accumulate, you can, I don't want to say accumulate wealth, but you can make a lot of money and still be incredibly charitable, kind, Mm -hmm. and not succumb to things like pride. So I don't think it's inherently bad. But it, right, it could go either way. You could also rise to wealth through exploitation and dishonest business practices and, and all kinds of things. But you could also become poor because of, of excesses and drug abuse. And yeah. So I think it could go either way in either case. Mm-hmm. And to say, I mean, I, I truly, and maybe you could say, well, that's easy for you to say you've been a middle class person for your entire life. So I am sensitive to something like this. But from my observation, the people who are happiest and who possess great, uh, let's say, moral qualities... That has been pretty consistent throughout the board. Some middle class people had it, some lower class people had it, some upper class people had it. Uh, I think they all had their own obstacles. I think it's some some parts of discipleship are more difficult if you're poor in a certain society. Uh, but I think some parts of a, a pursuit of discipleship are difficult when you're rich in a society. I don't think it's easy for anybody, you know. And I think some things are easier for different groups of people. So I find it difficult to condemn. I personally wouldn't condemn anyone for being rich. I don't think being rich in this society, uh, making lots of money in this society is inherently bad. And I do think, but I do think if you accumulate lots of resources and you don't deal with it in a good way. And uh, then it is not, a greater responsibility. Right. To whom much is given, much, uh, much from is whom much is given, much but, is required. But you know, the same thing, I mean, wealth is, yes, I agree. But I also agree, wealth is just one of the many things that that could be implying. Of course. I mean, wealth is just one thing. It's just one of the most obvious things. It's one of the most obvious things. Like, I mean, if I was... Someone who's super poor could have been entrusted with much more than a person who's really wealthy. Because they're given different things. I mean, the person who's really poor might... Right, even just something like a larger family. Something like a larger family. They're entrusted with those children. That's probably more valuable than a ton of money. And also, they might be entrusted with these awesome intellectual abilities or these physical capabilities and so on and so forth. Or this really great oppor- business opportunity as a poor person or this other great opportunity. I don't know. It's just one of the factors. So it's impossible to context. I can't say – I can look at someone who has a lot of money and say, wow, you have a great opportunity to do these things with your money, which is a true statement. But that's because that's visible. It's hard for me to look at someone and say, wow, you have such a great opportunity because you have an exuberant personality, for example. Well, and the gospel does have an important thing to say about that as well I want to throw in here. Um, Because having more wealth is not necessarily um, morally caused, I guess you could say, um, or it it does not imply some... Any sort of moral culpability for better or for worse. Essentially, wealth is morally neutral mm-hmm. and often circumstantial. It's a scalar. And um, coincidental and, and these different things because, you know, so many people are just born into it. And because they're born into it, they get the kind of education that allows them to retain it. And, and so the gospel is very emphatic about don't, you know, don't garner all this praise for yourself by doing these big publicity, charity stunts, and those right. kinds of things. The gospel tells us to give quietly, mm-hmm. and no one needs to know about it besides God, and 
and that if you insist on making a big show of it, well, you'll probably get your reward here and not in heaven. Right. But you're not going to get you get it rewarded twice. Right. If the re- reward that you want for your charitable giving is social appraisal, then that's what you're going to get. But if it's treasure in heaven, then that's what you're going to get. Right. My other uh, qu- critical question, is capitalism bad? I don't think capitalism is inherently bad. Uh, I just think it has its own unique set of pros and cons. And so did the feudal society. Mm-hmm. So did a monarchical society. And those are political systems rather than necessarily economic systems. But communism, I think, has pros. I also think it has cons. I think socialism has pros and cons. I could go down the list forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All systems have pros and cons, and a capitalism, <clears throat> a capitalist society does as well. And we we pointed out some of the cons that it has, which are notable and true, but those don't make it something that is uh, reprehensible. I, I don't think we've made a system. Uh, we've never practiced a system, I guess, except for those exalted societies. And honestly, I think economics was a complete side note for societies like that. Like... I think there comes a point when, so when we say an economic system, we mean a set of rules that people agree on. So like, it's like, it's the same thing as Monopoly. Everyone Mm -hmm. decides to play by the economic rules of Monopoly too, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I just think suddenly economic rules and political rules and moral rules eventually all just become the same thing. You know, if you make them all circles and then you, you know, make it a three-circled Venn diagram, there's something in the middle that's not an economic system or a moral system or a political system. It's just like a, a system of being. And it's a bunch of rules people agree on, but you wouldn't call it an economic system. It's transcended things like that. I think that's the kind of thing we're, just, we're talking about when we talk about an ascended society. It didn't subscribe. We didn't like, oh, figure out this new best economic mm-hmm. system. It was just the conglomeration of people who shared. Right, and it's exactly. It's not a best economic or political system. It's a best type of person. Right. And the others just become non-issues. Right. Um, Yeah, so I would agree with you. I would say being rich is not inherently wrong. Um, It has a lot of opportunity. It has a lot of responsibility. Um, But it's not necessarily morally wrong and also not morally indicative of anything about that person. I would say capitalism, is capitalism evil? My answer is actually probably, but only (laughs) in the sense that anything that is not God's law is lower. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like how Paul says, what is not faith is sin. Mm -hmm. It's uh, in the sense that we're commanded to be perfect and to strive for the highest, it is wrong. And fallen and incorporates corruption and and evil and and every system does like you said whether it's best is a different question but i do think it's evil mm-hmm. or at least has evil aspects um i think uh maybe one last scripture here one last question um camel through the eye of a needle mm-hmm. You know, a popular interpretation of that one is that, well, the needle is a gate to enter Jerusalem. And what that means is it's not like, you know, a sewing needle on a camel. And it's not God is saying, which I need to go back and look at that because they 
the apostles respond and they're like, well, who can be saved? And then he goes off on some other parable and I can't remember what he says. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, because that, that interpretation says it's impossible to be rich and to be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, the other interpretation says the camel has to shed the load it's carrying in order to pass through the gate that is slightly too short. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you have to shed your riches in order to enter the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. which uh, I do. I don't know if it's uh, textually justified that interpretation, uh, but I've I do heard, like it. I've heard that the, my professor said that explanation was bogus. Is what he said. Okay. <laughs> Based on like historical records from around the time, but I'm sure other. Well, I do think it's a. I mean, of course, it's the explanation that capitalists would offer, right? For example, but. <laughs> I do think it's a nice, you know, you can't take that with you is the basic idea. Mm-hmm. You can't take that with you to heaven. Yeah. Um, unlike the Egyptians, we don't bury people with tons of gold so they can be rich in the next life. Right. Um, what do I think? What do yeah, I think? Do you, have meant, any, do you have any thoughts about that? I think he meant exactly what he said. I think he thought in a society like the one I'm living in right now, the kind of people who are accumulating wealth are the kind of people who won't get in to the heaven that I'm describing. And he meant that. But I just don't think that when he says something like that, that it, it immediately becomes universally applicable. I mean, there are things that Jesus said that mm-hmm. we don't practice, you know? Like, Jesus says that widows aren't allowed to get... Females who get divorced are no longer allowed to get married. Or, in other words, women can only have sex with one man, but men can have sex with multiple But also women. that if the... Well, yeah... And also, like, you know, if, if a man dies, then the woman should marry his brother and, right. and stuff like that. Right. To take care of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, so, yes. So that some things are culturally informed, and you think this is one of them. Right. And I don't I mean, I, this is a totally different discussion. That's all I'm going to say about it. Yeah. Okay. I think he meant exactly what he said, and he was probably right at the time. But it's not applicable to us. And now he's not. <laughs> I don't even think Jesus really could have conceptualized capitalism. Not in that state. If he learned things... You know, as a mortal, grace by grace, you know, uh-huh. I, I don't think it was really relevant for him at any point in his life to understand the ins and outs of capitalism, you know? I bet he understands it now, considering he's omnipotent, <laughs> omnipotent <laughs> and omniscient and watching this conversation as it unfolds now. But uh, then he didn't have to know McDonald's. He's not watching it as it unfolds. He's seen the, the whole thing at once. He's seen the whole thing already. That's true. It's all present for him. Right. <laughs> Past, present, future is all before him. Mm-hmm. Panoramic. Okay. Yeah, I think that good discussion of um, gospel economics. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think so too. Or a lot of just a lot of things where the gospel just really doesn't take a stance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think kind of a general lesson to learn from this is the gospel is intended to make us the kind of people who, um, well, it's intended to improve society and also the individual. It's intended to imprint the soul and also to establish Zion, which those are actually the same thing if you think about it. They are the same thing. It's that that middle of the Venn diagram where there's no distinction. I think good societies are made up of good people. And... I think uh, good systems are awesome, uh, but I don't think I don't think that we arrive at the perfect society by making the perfect system. I think we arrive at the perfect society 
by being composed of lots of perfect people. Mm-hmm. And that's the gospel solution to everything. How do you solve war? Become a disciple. Mm-hmm. How do you solve poverty? Become a disciple. It's not a defense system, and it's not an economic system, and it's not a political system. So mm-hmm. the answer really always is Jesus Christ. It really is. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to my podcast. Take us how we are, and we'll catch you next time.